You're listening to the Maritime History Podcast. I'm Brandon Hubner. This is Episode 1, Boating with the Ubaid People. And before we dive into the discussion, let me just encourage you to head over to the podcast website, MaritimeHistoryPodcast.com, where you'll find links to connect on social media, photos and videos to help supplement the topics that we'll cover in each episode, forums where you can join in discussion with other listeners of the podcast, and a few other good things related to the podcast itself and to maritime history that I hope you'll find interesting. With that said, let's get into episode one, where we'll see how the first sailors were farmers. And I know that might sound a little strange to hear at first, but it's true as we'll have seen by the end of the episode. We'll start our podcast narrative with the earliest of true civilizations, ancient Mesopotamia, and the earliest evidence of watercraft from Mesopotamia is found in the prehistoric period that's been called the Ubayid period. In this episode, I'll use the term Ubayid to refer to the people group as a culture, but it's also the name of a settlement site in the region, and it's the label affixed to the historical period when the Ubayid people were present in southern Mesopotamia. Quickly though, before we discuss the Ubayid people's relation to maritime history, let's briefly look at where they came from and why they are considered to be among the first major players on the historical stage. The predecessors of the Ubayid people have been called the Samara culture, a culture that existed in the middle section of Iraq and practiced irrigation as a method to enhance their agricultural production. During the Samara period, small settlements emerged as the farming peoples banded together, but none of the settlements would be considered large to any extent, nor was the Samara culture the only culture that populated the Middle East, as many different farming cultures were sprinkled around the area. Although some trade occurred among the early farmers, most of that trade was land-based and contained to the middle and northern regions of Iraq. The main area that had not been settled was the area furthest south in Mesopotamia, the alluvial plain where the Tigris and Euphrates drain into the Persian Gulf. Gradually, the Samara culture gave way to the Ubayid culture, a people who were the first to move south and make southern Mesopotamia their home. There, they took advantage of the fertile conditions to further improve agricultural production, a result that in turn caused the establishment of early permanent settlements in southern Mesopotamia. Now, while there are many fascinating rabbit trails to explore when it comes to the Ubayid people and the development of society, civilization, and culture, our main focus on this podcast is maritime history, so I'll try to keep it focused to the background elements that are most closely related to the maritime aspects of history. One of those background elements involves the local ecology, climate, and natural resources, all things that played a huge role in the early development of the Ubaid people and just about every other civilization that has emerged throughout history. The region bordering the Persian Gulf can be quite dry, despite the high water table there, and the Ubaid people managed to institute a complex system of canal works, harnessing the life-giving water in the Tigris and Euphrates and diverting it to irrigate their crops and grow grain. On top of making crop growth more difficult, the aridity of southern Mesopotamia also kept the region from being well forested, and because the Ubaid people lacked a sufficient wood supply to make wood their main building material, they quite naturally opted to use the most prevalent resource in their area. In Mesopotamia, and particularly in the region where the Tigris and Euphrates meet the Persian Gulf, 
that natural resource was, and still is, the reed that grows in marsh-like environments. Generally, these marsh reeds are quite sturdy and can grow to lengths of up to 15 feet, which, if you're wanting to build a boat, is a fair amount of material that will allow you to construct a decent-sized vessel. As we talk about reed boats, let's keep in mind the fact that ancient cultures did use wood to make boats, but reed boats were the most common type of boat in the region we are currently discussing. Later on, we'll look at some examples of wooden boats that were built by other ancient cultures, but for now, we're going to focus on the early evidence for reed boats. The Ubaid people grew adept at using reeds for a variety of uses, even using them to build dwellings and entire floating villages. A great example of this type of culture, and what it would have looked like, can be seen in the still-existent culture that occupies the same region where the Ubaid and Sumerian people originally flourished. This modern people group is known either as the Madan, or also as the Marsh Arabs. They live in villages that are made completely of reed and float on the marshy water in Iraq's southern region. The Marsh Arab culture has fascinated me personally, and on a more recent note, in the 1990s, sectarian religious persecution waged by Saddam Hussein's government forced many of the Marsh Arabs from their homes. The Iraqi government diverted the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in a way that caused the marshes where the Madan people lived to dry up, in turn causing their food supply to vanish, a result that ultimately forced a large percentage of them to become refugees. Now, although the marshes have gradually been revived in recent years, allowing some of the people to return to their way of life, many of them are still refugees to this day, and I encourage you to do some research of your own if their plight piques your interest. Anyhow, after that rabbit trail that I think you'll forgive me for, let's get back to the Ubayid people and their use of the reed. And actually, in my defense, the Marsh Arabs do relate to our discussion of reed boat construction, and in a way that British explorer and travel writer Sir Wilfrid Thesiger can help explain. Thesiger wrote a great book detailing the time that he spent living among the Marsh Arabs during the 1950s and 60s, and in the book, he has a passage that describes his observations of an Arab man building a reed boat, probably using the same technique that was used by his ancestors of millennia ago. Thesiger describes the reed boat construction this way. First, he made half a dozen tight bundles of five or six cassab reeds, rather longer than the length of the proposed boat, and fastened them securely together side by side to form the keel. 18 inches free at both ends, which he bent upwards. He next bent five long reeds into the shape of a U, passed the middle among the loose ends of the keel, and laced them back to the keel itself. He repeated the process at either end alternatively until he had built up the sides and ends of the hull. This framework he stiffened by tying into it a number of ribs made from two or three willow wands. Finally, he wedged three stout sticks across the boat as thwarts, and secreted their ends in place with lumps of bitumen. Now, before we get to the all-important bitumen, it's important to note that the man in Thesiger's passage was busy constructing a coracle, which is a boat that is round and reinforced by ribbing along the internal structure. The coracle is one common type of reed boat, but it is just as easy to build a reed boat in the more traditional, elongated canoe shape, and the Marsh Arabs still use reeds to build boats of both styles. 
All right, I mentioned that bitumen was all important, and in the passage a minute ago, it was the last thing that the boat builder added to his boat. So what's the big deal with bitumen? And what is it anyways? Bitumen is a naturally occurring substance that is quite similar to modern asphalt. It's black and oily, but it's also viscous and tar-like, so it makes a great sealant among other uses. The Ubayids were the first people to use bitumen on a large scale. And although it has a variety of uses, bitumen is most relevant to maritime history because the Ubayids used it to waterproof their reed houses and boats. They'd originally used mud to seal their reed constructions, but mud was a poor sealant that had to be reapplied constantly as it broke down. Bitumen, on the other hand, was impervious to moisture and maintenance-free for the most part, so it proved a giant leap forward for the Ubayids in their quest to keep their boats and their houses in useful shape for long periods. We know that bitumen became an important part of the Ubayid people's societal growth thanks to a boat model that was found at Asabia, an archaeological site in modern-day Kuwait. At this site, archaeologists discovered traces of a stone architecture that indicated some settlement of the area. The site was tied to the Ubayid people because of the distinctive pottery by which most Ubayid sites have been identified. At Asabia, along with the Ubayid pottery evidence, archaeologists discovered a small ceramic boat model. It measures 14.5 centimeters long by 7 centimeters wide, and its current height is slightly more than 5 centimeters. I say current height because the prow and stern of the boat are raised, but at some point in history past, they were broken off. Without reading too far into this one single artifact, in its context, the boat model is indicative of the fact that the earliest Mesopotamian settlers used boats, and that they traveled fairly large distances at that. The raised prow and stern of the boat are evidence that it is a model of a reed boat, as reed boats typically have a curved prow and stern where the ends of the reeds are tied together and bent. Because the model is quite small and devoid of detail, it still leaves much to be desired in the way of evidence about their construction techniques. However, other artifacts uncovered at Asabia give us better insight into the Ubayid people's boat construction. These other artifacts are a series of bitumen chunks, many of which bear reed impressions on one side and barnacles on the other side. Because the pottery uncovered at Asabia does not show signs of having been submerged in water, the only logical explanation for the bitumen having barnacles on it is that a reed structure or artifact was covered in bitumen and then submerged in the sea for an appreciable length of time. There is some other evidence at the site that tends to show that the bitumen likely came from a reed boat, probably of the same kind that we have already seen were being used by the Ubaid people. What does the evidence of a reed boat in Kuwait tell us about the Ubaid people, then? Well, basically, it tells us that before the Sumerian cities began to grow in earnest, the Ubaid people had begun to trade with the fishing communities that line the central Persian Gulf. I'll post a map that shows the locations of the Ubayid-related sites that have been identified so far to help give you a visual look at where Asabia is located in comparison to the main Ubayid settlement in southern Mesopotamia. While you're looking at the map, try to keep in mind that at the time period we're discussing, the Persian Gulf extended about 25 miles further to the northwest than it currently does. So in pre-Sumerian Mesopotamia, 
The major cities that sprouted up, such as Eridu, Uruk, and Ur, were much nearer to the coastline than they are today. The evidence at Asabia goes a long way to helping us see that the Ubaid people were adept at using reeds and bitumen to build the early reed boats that were probably abundant in their society. It also goes without saying that natural resources like reeds and bitumen are degradable, and we've not really found any complete reed boat artifacts to date, but we have found other indicators to help us chart out the locations where reed boats were likely used. Although reed boat evidence has been found at large distances from Mesopotamia, evidence of sailing technology does not show up in our narrative until later, so it's likely that the Ubayid boatmen kept close to the shore of the Persian Gulf while on their trading runs, a theory that is further bolstered by the fact that almost all of the Ubayid period sites are found only on the western shore of the Persian Gulf. As we draw near the end of this episode, We've seen how the Ubaid people settled in southern Mesopotamia, how they pioneered the irrigation techniques that allowed their culture to flourish, and how they used their natural resources to construct basic boats. Be sure to tune in next time when we meet their successors and see how the growth of civilization and shifting social dynamics led to the first long-distance sea trade between civilizations. If you've enjoyed this first episode, consider visiting the main website at MaritimeHistoryPodcast.com. There you can join in discussion on the forums and find links to connect with the podcast on social media. Listeners like you are the lifeblood of a show like this, so anything you can do to help spread the word about the podcast would be greatly appreciated. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. Podcast.